Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But she's our guest, music journalist Kate French-Morris. If I'd thought about it, I never would have done it. I guess I would have let it slide. If I'd paid attention to what others were thinking, the heart inside me would have died. I was just too stubborn to ever be governed by enforced insanity. Someone had to reach for the rising star. I guess it was up to me. The Union Central is pulling out. The orchids are in bloom. I've only got me one good shirt left, and it smells of stale perfume. In 14 months, I've only smiled once, and I didn't do it consciously. Somebody's got to find your trail. I guess it must be up to me. Fabulous. Yeah. Are you stuff. just too stubborn to ever be governed oh, by enforced insanity? <laughs> <laughs> I'm extremely stubborn. That's Is that why, why did you choose it? I could have chosen so many. I think when you're a Bob listener, it kind of goes without saying that you're somebody who listens fairly intently to lyrics. But I think this, I mean, I could have chosen like any verse from this song as well. But I think these two kind of encapsulate pretty much everything that I love about Bob. The kind of humour and all the just like tantalising snippets of story that he just gives you just enough that you want to know more and you're also like, what the hell's going on? Mm. And it's like slightly surreal. And there's that like poetic detail. And then just lines like, you know, in 14 months I've only smiled once and I didn't do it consciously, which is just great. Mm. Um, I think particularly given the last 14 months of our lives, that line's definitely come to me more than a few times. I know there's so many unanswered questions in that, as you say, and I wonder if someone has ever composed a list of unanswered (laughs) questions in Bob Dylan's songs, Mm. like the, you know, it smells of stale perfume, you know. There's a whole story there. Yeah, mm. it's almost like he's like doing creative writing prompts and you can just go off and write your own story from each verse. But um, And, of course, this is an off-cut. This is a rejected track. This yeah. is the kind of stuff he can afford to throw away. Yeah, which know? is insane. Yeah. I mean, I only heard it... Like, I only heard it for the first time in the last year. And yeah. I was like, what the hell? Like, oh, really? <laughs> so you heard it on More Blood, More Tracks? Yeah, I was just doing a kind of lockdown delve back into mm. stuff mm. and um, just kind of got my mind blown by this song. So yeah. did you go deep into that entire box set? No. That's, no. Not, not, no. <laughs> You're not insane. <laughs> well, I th- I got halted by this song, I think. Yeah. I just got stuck on this song for ages. And there's so many other good lines, like, you know, it frightens me, the awful truth of how sweet life can be. Yeah. Well, let's ask a, a little bit about just about you. Mm-hmm. I know that you're... you're 29. I know that you're a music <laughs> journalist. Uh, not much more than that. So where... Are you from London? Yes. Yeah. Um, born in Hammersmith. Born on the same day as Bob. Not the year. Not the year, right. (laughs) Clearly. (laughs) And Roseanne Cash, I think, has the same birthday as you both. Yes. And Queen Victoria. Oh, Um, okay. But yeah, born in London. Parents are both Dylan fans. Ah. They saw him play, I think, not long before I was born, actually, in Hammersmith. Oh, Hammersmith 91. (laughs) Come back to that. (laughs) (laughs) So they just walked around the corner and saw Bob. Yeah. Why were you shuddering? Well, that was my first, if if I forgot the, the date right... I saw Bob Dylan for the first time in Hammersmith in 1991 and for some reason continued to go and see him and buy his his music because it was shockingly poor. Oh, really? Yeah. But, you know, he got better. There was a whole point for about 16 years where I saw him in concert and every time I saw him he was better than the last time and I thought this cannot last. (laughs) But it happened because I started at absolute rock bottom. Yeah, bottom. Yeah. Well, my parents left that detail out. Yeah, well, maybe, I mean, you know, lots of people liked it. Lots of people tell me now that I was I was missing something great, but... Um, but when you're a Dylan fan, you're kind of, you, you pretty much sign up for life, although I, I fell off the train myself yeah. uh, 
once or twice. But did they did they play a lot of Dylan? I mean, normally you don't want to listen to the music that your parents Yeah, like I mean, they were pretty good. Like, I was kind of aware of him just because of the birthday thing, and mm. my parents loved that, um, so they were always telling me. <laughs> I mean, I had no idea who he was. I just thought... Maybe he was like a family friend or something. <laughs> Did you escape with um, no sort of Bob Dylan connected middle name or anything? Oh God. <laughs> but yeah, I mean they they were they didn't shove him down my throat. But my dad plays guitar and he one of the songs that he often played was, you know, Hey Mr. Tambourine Man. Um so I was aware of mm. a lot of the songs. They were fans, but they didn't force it upon me. So it wasn't really until my 20s that I kind of really discovered him for myself. I was gonna say, because that's when most people get into Dylan is in their twenties. Yeah. And so, I mean, what was the first Bob Dylan album that you bought on the day of release or, the, or, the, or at the time of release? I mean, that would have actually been Rough and Rowdy Ways. Wow. Um, so yeah. presumably you discovered him maybe through digital media rather than um, CDs? My mum had Time Out of Mind in the car in the 90s. So I guess I remember mm. that being around. And, yeah, like Nashville Skyline, things like that. But, yeah, it would have been iTunes and it was actually getting into, um, not to talk about Springsteen too much, but um, getting into Springsteen when I was 20 and listening to his back catalogue and especially his first two albums yeah. are so Dylan-y. When, like, yeah. you suddenly realise he was obsessed with Dylan. And I yeah. think Dylan even said he listened to um, Greetings from Raspberry Park and was like, um, this guy better be careful, he's going to use up all the words in the English language. Um, <laughs> So, so did you get into Bruce before you seriously got into Bob? Was Bruce yeah, your sort of yeah, gateway Bruce, to Bob? Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. And doing all the kind of reading about Bruce and listening to, you know, him talking in interviews and, you know, his Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction of Bob. Course. Um, yeah. He was definitely, more than my parents, he was probably the one that got me into Bob. Did, did you, you see that Rock and... I think it's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yeah. concert in 95 when they play Forever Young together? yeah. It's it's awkward. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit awkward. Partly because Dylan's wearing this rather sort of odd gold oh, it's shirt. Awful. Isn't it? Yeah, it's like lame kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're such different personalities. Mm. I mean, they really are kind of like chalk and cheese. Because mm. Bruce wants to communicate quite clearly. Yeah. That for that's number one. Mm. Yeah. And Bob likes to do the opposite. Yeah. I mean, just like with interviews, you know, Bruce is mm. really good at. In- I would interview Bruce in a heartbeat because I know it wouldn't be excruciating, yeah. but. With Bob, yeah, no. That, that's a whole different thing you have to train for, isn't it? Um, yeah. And if you watch them getting the, was it the Presidential Medal of Honor or whatever? Yeah. Freedom. Uh, freedom. Freedom. Something like that. Or, yeah. yeah. Um, you just see Bruce doing it. He's very kind of, you know, he, he knows how to handle mm. the situation. But Bob, it's like the most awkward bit of footage I've ever seen. It's like horrendous seeing yeah. Obama putting them, like, I... <laughs> just makes my skin crawl he's, just, <laughs> he's so he doesn't want to be there mm. and he doesn't even acknowledge Obama it's like it's very it's, very strange yeah I know but they asked it's, Obama afterwards what did Bob Dylan say to you you know backstage and he said nothing he never said a word to me <laughs> yeah yeah it's just this strange kind of skinny small man with a strange moustache what are yeah, you doing kind of, there? and he's, he's like always he's moving isn't he mm. I mean literally moving he's yeah. sort of not shaking but jittery just, yeah but that's just the way he I think he is. I think he's incapable, metaphorically and literally, of mm-hmm. standing still. Yeah. So what, did you go via, like, Nebraska or something like that? Because that's quite a sort of Dylan-esque way in, um, or not. No, it was more the, the first two albums. Yeah. Um, particularly 
The Wild, The Innocent yeah. and The E Street Shuffle. I mean, I'd always liked Bob before that. And it was also other things like living in America for a year really got me into Bob because I was kind of understanding what he was singing about in so many of his songs kind of firsthand. Because I was, I was there the year Trump got in, so wow. listening to songs like Masters of War just had, took on a whole new meaning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also I think I looked at a blog that you wrote about <laughs> tr- your travelling in America. So you travelled, I think, primarily by bus? Yes. So that's very yeah. Bob, at least. Very, yeah, it wasn't quite as, as romantic as I'd hoped it would be. It's brutal, isn't it's, it? I've, yeah. I've, 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 it's a bit more like Midnight Cowboy. Yeah, <laughs> even that looks kind of more pleasant. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, bus stations are... Yeah, I mean, it's great because it's kind of real, but it's, yeah, yeah it's definitely not the, the thing that you're you're listening to. Do you think that version of America still exists? Because I, I mean, I certainly was brought up on enough of this kind of music to believe that one day I'd like to drive across America either by bus or, or by car or whatever. And latterly, I've sort of thought, not only am I never going to do that because I'm too old and everyone in my life who wants to have done it has already done it, I also, I'm not sure that that America is there anymore. I don't know whether that's just me convincing myself that it's not. I mean, did you find that it was a different America or...? It's tricky because I was going with the intent of finding the the, the version of America that I knew in, in Springsteen and Dylan. Simon and Garfunkel um, as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. But I mean, you can I count the cars on the New Jersey Turnpike or whatever, <laughs> but then then do you sort of think, well, that whole romantic notion of going coast to coast or whatever, in, I mean, in, in Trump's America, is that a different ethos? Does it exist? Is there room for it? There's definitely room for it. I think you have to be probably a bit of an optimist. Mm. But I think a lot of the things in those songs are still there in just different forms. But there are definitely moments of when you just think this is bleak and yeah. there's no romance here. Mm. But then I think that, you know, um, there's like an interview with Springsteen, really early one, and he says that in all the songs that he wrote in the 70s, before Darkness, it was, you know, romanticising his way out of the reality. Are you aware of uh, Dan Byrne? Who's, uh, he was one of our yes, guests. Um, yeah. Uh, he um, wrote a song uh, on one of his recent albums, which had become much more country than folk and it's uh it's called uh, the waffle house and the, the chorus is uh red state's got the waffle house the blue states don't and <laughs> to him that's a big difference in america yeah is uh whether you got a i mean because that means working class really mm-hmm. that's you know where you go for a big yeah night out yeah, is the yeah. waffle house yeah Funnily enough, I'm just, I'm just telling Luke, I'm, I'm watching the second series of Fargo, the TV series, oh, yeah. and there's this massacre at a Waffle House in the first scene. Um, I don't know if it's supposed to be a metaphor <laughs> or not, but, uh, but I'm, I'm from Canada, not, not mm-hmm. America, so we, I can look almost literally down or yeah. when, I, yeah, when, yeah. You know, when I was growing up and, and was just thinking, God, I'm, I'm kind of, they've got Springsteen, they've got Dylan, they've got Simon and Garfunkel, and they've got the Greyhound bus, but... You know, it's it's not as romantic. No, mm. I think when I went there, I was thinking, oh, maybe I can figure out a way of moving here. And then by the end of the year, I was, like, quite glad to come back. I mean, even, to... you know, Easy Rider is a, a romantic notion that ends with, you know, right-wing guys with a shotgun. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's that's pretty prescient. Yeah. And I mean, the Kerouac version, the Chuck Berry version, I'm not sure they're there anymore. But, I mean, you know, certainly Midnight Cowboy and Easy Rider saw the dark side of those trips. Yeah. Yeah, a long time ago, sure. didn't they? Yeah. I mean, the music's still great. Yeah. There's still some fantastic music coming out of it. Yeah. But music comes mostly from uh, hardship and mm-hmm. terror and conflict, and mm. uh, they've got that. 
this is getting very dark. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you li- you then you lived in Berkeley. I did. Yeah. So I studied at UC Berkeley, and actually, I did a class called America Song by Song, and that was you know that was great because it really did rinse any romanticism out of you know because you went from the really early folk stuff to like murder ballads and. I, I sense the whiff of Grill Marcus here. Uh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was my professor. That's amazing. Um, so he's, he taught yes, America's Song by Song. He did, yeah. I sort of want to know what every single song well, was. Well, me too. How long like, give us some. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. I mean, it was a while ago. Um, there was a lot of Dylan, mm. obviously. And it's funny because it, it was actually a freshman class and I was in my third year of university at this point. I definitely shouldn't have been there, but mm. I kind of like wheedled my way in and was like sitting in the front row and all these like gum-chewing freshmen that didn't care and I was just so excited that Grill Marcus wow. was about to teach me. Oh my God. Um, but yeah, we did a whole week on um, Masters of War and that was wow. really intense. And then, yeah, Murder Ballads, Beyonce, Strange Fruit, mm-hmm. kind of all the... The ones that you would expect, yeah. but I mean, it was amazing, and particularly as a like British person, it was kind of very good for me to get rid of all my cliches and stupid notions about America. Well, there's no one better to teach that subject than Grill Marcus. Mm. I'm convinced of it. It must have been fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't that familiar with his writing before, and but then you know, so excited that he was there, and um, yeah, yeah, he was great. He wasn't he wasn't condescending or anything. He was very kind of you know a great lecturer. Yeah. How did so? How did it work? Did he deliver his lectures and set papers? And did, yeah. did you have a one-to-one chats at, at any point? Yeah. Or? So it was he was mostly lecturing, um, and a lot of his lectures are based off things that he's written before. So he did a lecture on money. That's what I want, and money changes mm-hmm. everything, which was one of my favorite lectures. Yeah. It was just brilliant. But then he had office hours, so. I kind of plucked up the courage and went and sat in his office and we just talked about Springsteen, actually. <laughs> really? Really? <laughs> For a while. and then He's quite selective about his Springsteen, isn't he? He, he wrote, likes Stolen Car and things like that. Yeah, really. he wrote, uh, he loves the kind of darkness era and he mm. wrote, there's a, in one of his books called, I think it's called like In the Fascist Bathroom, he mm-hmm. wrote about hearing songs from darkness kind of played live on the radio for the first time. Mm. And then, yeah, I wrote my end-of-year paper on Racing in the Street. Uh, speaking of uh, Bob and um, Bruce, I watched the interview with Stephen Colbert. Have you seen that? Well, yes. That came out yeah. when the latest album came out. Did, do you remember Bruce's top three Dylan songs when he you know, forced him to choose the top three, his top um, three Dylan songs? I can remember two of them. Very Go. obvious ones, I think. Uh, like a Rolling Stone. Yeah. Visions of Johanna. Yep. Ring them bells. Yes. Whoa. <laughs> Three. You got that. Fantastic. And then I think he pressed because he he put visions of Johanna and ring them bells sort of on the same mm. line in a way. Mm. So he gave him one more, and then he just sort of said, uh, "All of John Wesley Hardy." <laughs> I would love to hear Bruce Springsteen sing "Ring Them Bells." Yeah. Oh, I would love that. I, I mean, that whole album. I hear so much Springsteen in that album. Yeah. And when you think about when it came out, you know, it was like five years after Born in the USA. Yeah. Bob Shirley was listening at least or Daniel Lanois was listening well no I think so and I think I mean backtracking I think we've alluded to this on the podcast and I've, I've read about it since then that the use of Arthur Baker on Empire Burlesque mm. was definitely related to Arthur Baker's dance remixes of yeah, Born in the USA which I love yeah, yeah. Um, I only discovered those recently as well. Yeah. Oh, my God. I don't think Um, I knew about them because I found one on YouTube and I thought, oh, this sort of rings a bell, but I'm not sure I ever sat down and listened to this. Yeah. 
but that's interesting that Dylan may have heard that and thought, <laughs> he's selling some serious <laughs> records here. Maybe we'll get Arthur Baker, maybe he'll some, sprinkle some, uh, some 80s magic into my sound. And then it took him another five years to find the right producer, mm-hmm. I guess. Did the, I'm, I'm interested in those um, gum-chewing freshmen you were talking about. Just, <laughs> just wondering if they, why they were there and if they, if they were uh, hypnotized in a good way by Greel Marcus eventually, if they sort of stopped chewing their gum. <laughs> or, you know, why the hell were they there if they weren't um, know, I feel thrilled. a bit harsh calling them gum-chewing freshmen, I'm sure. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think they were there because they had to be there. Um, I think it was like a required course for American studies, whereas oh. I definitely should not have been there. <laughs> it's it's kind of tragic thinking of of him not having somebody mm. like you there, mm. just having yeah, because it's his stuff is hard. I mean, it took me. It was Luke that actually got mm. me to appreciate Greal Marcus because I sometimes you know when it's in the written word when the sentence goes on for like yeah. many yeah, many yeah. lines, maybe even a whole page. When I, I first when I first tried to read a Griel Marcus book, I just I think I threw it across the room. Mm. But once you sort of get into the mindset and you think, oh, I, he's going somewhere. Where is he going? Yeah, like I have no idea where this is going. And even when you think when he's writing about Dylan, and you think, but he's written, he's gone on for like three pages, <laughs> and there's absolutely nothing about Dylan or Dylan's song or anything. But then, yeah, you get used to it. And you yeah. realize that that's how he. That's how he. In fact, I ended up. You know that this Dylan book came out for his 80th birthday, uh, one of the many. But it was it was the one that was uh, sanctioned by the Tulsa. Sean Latham's one. Sean Latham's one. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I read the Griot Marcus. I, I did the audio book. Yeah. Uh, so I I read many of them. But I I said I want the Griot Marcus. I bagged the Griot Marcus. <laughs> I'm going to do the Griot Marcus. And it was ten times harder than anything else. Yeah. Uh, but it was absolutely worth it because you kind of, or I was able to get into, in a way, the way his brain works. Mm. But if you can't, like those people who are doing yeah. it for the wrong reasons, you, they must have been, that, that's not a good thing. Yeah, he is, I think he is, not everyone loves his writing and I think some people think it's a bit pretentious or, but I love it. I, he mm. doesn't write like any other music writer I know. And no. I think someone said of him, he gets as close to, Bob's mind, mm. the closest to Bob's mind that, that anyone can. Mm. And it's this kind of slightly sideways thinking. And I just really enjoy his writing. I think some of it's harder than others, mm. but I think there's always a sense of humor to it as well. And it's like almost like cattiness. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's quite yeah. bitchy, isn't he? Yeah. Which I think is great. And key phrases, I, I will remember. I read Mystery Train when I just, when I was entering my 20s and just getting into Dylan and just getting into the band. And I love the fact that he was a guy who was uniting Elvis and, and all, the, all the music that I loved. And I remember he wrote, because this, I think originally it was written in 1975, Mystery mm. Train. And so to end the story of Bob Dylan, it, it's, it's quite difficult to find a place to, to end that chapter. And he was talking about the 74 tour. And I think he said, he, he, des- he described something in the 1974 concert and he said, given the endings available, I choose this one. <laughs> and I just, that's such a great phrase because yeah. you, you could have to, any conversation about Bob Dylan, you have to pick your own ending. Yeah. Whilst touch with the man is still alive, you have to choose where it ends or doesn't. Yeah. And it's such a persuasive phrase, I thought. Yeah, he's very good at the turn of phrase and the, I mean, the, the famous obvious one is the self-portrait review, what is this shit, which... <laughs> I just, that phrase comes into my head, like, on a daily basis yeah. now, just in general yeah. life. Yeah, there's one, he reviews um, Blood on the Tracks. I can't remember where, but it's such a great review. And then the the last line is just, 
most of all, I really love the way he says Delacroix. (laughs) 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 Which is just, yeah. I wish there were more reviewers that wrote like that now. I know. Actually, somebody was talking to me about Delacroix recently. Mm. They'd been to Delacroix and they said that Delacroix doesn't really exist. Like Delacroix is, it's at the end of a dirt track Mm. and it's basically a place where they uh, just keep boats, you know, for going out onto the bayou. So being just outside of Delacroix is absolutely impossible. (laughs) It's it's not a thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's another wonderful little, you know, Bob Dylan joke just outside of Delacroix. Yeah. And where the hell is 56th and Wabashah? Not a clue. I don't know. Kansas City, maybe? We'll have to... <laughs> somebody will have to... Google Someone it. out there will know, yeah. So I, I was also looking at your old uh, Twitter feed or something, and at some point people were asked to list their top Bob Dylan songs. Mm-hmm. And your top one, it may not have been top, top, maybe it was just six Bob Dylan songs, Yeah. was uh, If You See Her, Say Hello. Oh, when was this? I think uh, this... Luke, I think you put me Oh, I don't know of a date on it. I, yeah, I stalked your Twitter feed for the last <laughs> couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> found it. But anyway, any any um does that song still grab you or was Oh yeah. Was... I mean that's a I mean the whole that whole album obviously I could have picked that for my opening mm. lines. Funnily enough that song was one I listened to a lot when I was doing my pretentious greyhound trips and you know there'd be like a sunset and I'd be thinking about you know I know every scene by heart they all went by so fast and mm. just being the most unbearable person ever. <laughs> it's just kind of an example of I love the way he's he manages to be kind of soft and emotional but also really catty and mm. kind of mm. mean and just really he kind of hones in on a an emotion that's so sharp and specific and mm. we all feel but nobody else can articulate and he just does it in a song and it's kind of almost uncomfortably right it's like yeah. Someone kind of putting, you know, those mirrors that kind of magnify your face. Yeah. It feels like that sometimes when you're listening to him. It's like, oh, God, I don't mind. <laughs> this is too much. And every sound is so well chosen. I mean, excuse the uh, the non-ex-drama students that listen to this, but I remember my voice teacher talking about plosive sounds at drama school. And, you know, I think of a line like, if you're making love to her, kiss her for the kid. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're quite, just, just that K sound is quite kind of confrontational yeah. and, and caustic, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, kind of just sharp, yeah. Sorry, I'm quoting from the wrong version, of course, the, <laughs> the, the New York version with the lyrics different, but yeah. I read a thing once uh, about that song where for some reason they thought it was set in Tangier. They said, this is a song about <laughs> some old girlfriend of Bob Dylan's. Apparently she's in Tangier. <laughs> I thought, no, she might be, yeah. but the odds are, are that she's Probably not. not. <laughs> so I think you really got the entire... I could just... All of a sudden, you see the entire thing set in Tangier. That's just yeah. interesting, but wrong. Yeah. yeah, It's so funny when people try to take Bob Dylan literally. I mean, who Yeah, that's not, never, never a good idea. Never a good idea. But going back to the, what you were saying about the kind of delivery, mm. um, I nearly picked um, most of the time... Oh. Um, yeah. as an opening mm-hmm. but I was trying to read it out loud and it, you just can't read it it's such a hard song to read mm. or recite it only works if you're Bob Dylan singing it mm. and it's when you look at the lyrics he's not even really saying anything but then when he sings it like that whole song is just that really is kind of mm. like one specific feeling yeah. made into a whole song and he um, shrugs he audibly shrugs doesn't yeah. he like, most of the time yeah it's you know, just a killer it's fantastic um, my friend um, Alice, who is 
also a Bob fan. Yeah. Um, she always says that that song was like Bob listening to Leonard Cohen's um, Chelsea Hotel. Mm. And the last line when he says, I don't even think of her that often. And it's oh, like Bob yes. took the word that and made it into a whole song, which I just think is a great... The aircon is up very high in here, but I have got chills from just <laughs> you saying that. Yeah, that's absolutely on the money. Yeah, it is difficult to recite Bob Dylan in certainly in particular songs because, mm. of course, his sense of timing and beat and meter mm. is just kind of it's so unique yeah. to him. Who else can? But, yeah. But it is it is uh, terrific. I I read uh, speaking of um, if you see your say hello. I think it was Clinton Halen who we don't mention all that often mm. on this show, but sometimes he comes up. You said it was like the ink was wet with last night's tears mm. when he, he said, "I think about that." Uh, which is very, uh, very good because yep. a lot of the times he says that was shit. He yeah. doesn't. <laughs> he's, it, sometimes it seems like he doesn't even like Bob Dylan. Yeah. But the the, the next song that you mentioned in that tweet was uh, Hurricane. Mm-hmm. Anything anything to to say to about um, that? Yeah. So the first, I have a very specific memory of the first time I heard that song, um, and I was in a coffee shop in LA, again pretentious, and the barista was putting on a record and he put on Desire and I I hadn't even heard of Desire somehow and I was there to kind of do some writing and do some work and I just got nothing done and I was like what is this just I think what's amazing about particularly that song it's like it still blows your mind Mm. like it sounds so fresh to my ears I was like what 25 then and Mm. yeah yeah Um, you can't do anything with that album playing in the background it's too arresting yeah it's just it was like nothing else I'd heard well, it's like somebody playing a movie, basically, isn't it? Yeah. In, in your head. Mm. Yeah. And you're just, yeah, caught up in the story and the, the sound of that. I can't remember if... I guess, like most people, when it came out, you, you wouldn't have known who Hurricane was. Mm. And presumably you I had didn't. no idea, yeah. Yeah. No, no so, I mean, in a way, that's what the first thing you, I guess, get out of that song is like, this is the story of the hurricane, but what is the hurricane? <laughs> yeah. Who is the hurricane? What the hell? Yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't know who he was. I didn't know who Joey Gallo was. I only just this year have watched that fantastic documentary series on Apple TV all about 1971, and now do I know a little bit more about George Jackson. Mm. But, you know, I've been listening to that song my whole life and not really known the story. George Jackson, of course, was kind of, was well-known in America, so Mm. those of us who knew who he was Mm. knew about that. But I don't think, uh, I certainly hadn't heard... Because the thing about the hurricane is he wasn't... The number one contender for the middleweight crown. He was never the number one mm. contender for the middleweight crown. Mm. I think very briefly he was the number three contender. <laughs> no, ser- quite seriously, it sounds like it's a joke. Not, not a great lyric, is it? <laughs> number three He's a number three contender. <laughs> briefly, <laughs> but uh, then, then I think he, you know, he fought the guy who was the champion, who actually, mm. you know, beat him quite severely. Yeah. And then that was it. You know, his mm. his career was on the slide, which is probably why he was. You know, riding around with his friends, yeah, doing whatever he, yeah, he was yeah. doing. But that's much more Dylan's purpose, isn't it? He's not. He's not really, with very few exceptions, taking someone's life and telling their story verbatim. He'd much rather take a bit of someone's life and say that suits me, and I'll nick that from mm-hmm. there, and I'll add this, and that'll make the story. Yeah, absolutely. I think he got. I mean, if I recall, he collated and twisted lots of facts. But I, I think Patty Valentine actually sued. Oh, really? Because yeah. she, I think, wasn't there. Well, the original... Or something like that. It was mm. some, it was, he'd taken a huge liberty. The original version of the song, which 
is still to this day unreleased was recorded in that that night that Rob Stoner talked about when they recorded virtually the whole album in one night mm-hmm. with Emily Lou Harris who is not on the the version on the album and they had mm-hmm. to re-record that song because of some lyrical changes things like I was only robbing the bodies I hope you understand and all, you know things like that <laughs> it became robbing the register because the lawyers got in touch and said yeah no no you know you're not putting that out on the song so I don't know if the Patty Valentine contented in that original version. I, can't I think there was eventually... No, I mean, I, I think there was a lawsuit. I think maybe they didn't even realise it at the time. Right. I, I think it was uh, there was a lawsuit and I think she got paid off mm. and immortalised mm. yeah, right. at the same time. I always wondered if it was some Irish guy named Patty <laughs> Valentine. It, it, no, it was some years later that I thought, oh, OK, it was... Miss <laughs> Billy. <laughs> 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 So you've got Like a Rolling Stone on that list, obviously. I don't know mm-hmm. if... Do you have anything more to say about Like a Rolling Stone that hasn't been said? I was interested that, to my knowledge, nobody has picked that song to open with. You're absolutely right. You're right. No, yeah. We discussed that once because I think yeah. people are Which too is, frightened of it. I, I was... Yeah, I, I, I toyed with the idea. Um, I mean, it's... I love that song, obviously. Mm. Um, and I think it spoke to such a specific moment, but I think now it can... For me, anyway, it's just about that feeling of... Because I, I started listening to it when I was in my teens and um, that feeling of knowing that you maybe want a slightly different life from what you see around you and mm. it means kind of dismantling everything you know and just going out by yourself and and it's that kind of frightening void that you're yeah. staring into. And I think that's kind of, you know, that's eternal. That, mm. that song will always speak to that, even though it was such a, a very important moment. I'm very fond of the... Um or at least I used to be, the, the, the live version on Before the Flood, based entirely on a film called New York Stories. You ever seen that? No. It's a, it was made in the early 90s, and it was a, a triptych, really. Of, of, they got three directors to tell three different stories, all set in New York, and utterly unconnected. The first is called Life's Lessons, with um, Nick Nolte. It's directed by Martin Scorsese. Then there's one called Life Without Zoe, which is directed by Francis Ford Coppola, I believe it's pronounced. And the third one is... Oedipus Rex by Woody Allen, and it was put out in the late 80s, early 90s. But in Life Lessons, Nick Nolte plays this abstract painter, and he paints with very loud music on in his impossibly hip New York apartment while Rosanna Arquette walks in and out you know, of his life. And he's painting to that live version of Like a Rolling Stone at one point, these big brush strokes, you know, and it just sounded better than it ever sounded. Mm. I must go back to it. That's a really good film, actually. Not the middle bit, but the... No, the Coppola one. The yeah. Coppola one is, is, is very bad. But <laughs> so the other two are fantastic, yeah. yeah. And the next one, or maybe the last one you chose, was Lady Delay on that list. Mm-hmm. These are all very much songs that were like, yeah, my coming to Bob songs. Mm. That was a, a really early track, like childhood. Mm-hmm. Probably one of the first, first songs I remember, because Nashville Skyline was something that one of the, the albums that my parents loved. But yeah, I remember really liking that song as a child, which is kind of slightly concerning given the, <laughs> the subject matter. But it, you can listen to it as a child. I think there's kind of images in it that are very child-friendly or, you know, have your cake and eat it too and you just think, yeah. oh, cake. And I think at the time I'd seen the film Bedknobs and Broomsticks right. and kind of conflated the two things in my head, which was the film. It's a film about a brass bed that flies through the sky. Oh. Um, so... Yeah, Bob Dylan on a brass bed flying through the sky. It's quite the image. But. Well, it can... I mean, the Everly Brothers thought it was about 
lesbian love. Oh. Uh, which is because apparently he asked them to record it, and they, they thought it was lay upon my breast. Breast. <laughs> Breast, breast, or something. Breast. They thought it was <laughs> something to do with yeah. ladies lying on each other's breasts. Yeah. So, so literally, I'm not making that up. Mm. They they mm. didn't want. They so they turned it down at the time, and then and then did it in 1985 instead, or 84, or whenever they recorded it. Yeah, a little little late. A bit, a bit late. Yeah, bless them. But I I remember uh, reading about you know the the odd combination of uh, bongos and mm. cowbell mm. that they've got. You know, which is mm-hmm. so. It kind of makes the song, and I, I read somewhere that um, that Kenny Buttery, the, the drummer, didn't couldn't get a handle on the beat, mm. and said to Bob in the studio, and we've had Charlie McCoy on the show. Yeah. Bob does not respond, you know, when you say, "Can you help me out here, Bob?" But uh, he thought he said, he said, "Bob, do you have any idea? You know, what kind of drumming do you want? What kind of percussion do you?" And he he thought Bob said. Bongos. <laughs> he wasn't sure, but he said bongos. Did he say bongos? Bongos. Bongos? So he sent Chris Christopherson out for some bongos because he was the guy, you know, who did stuff like that. And that's how they ended up getting wow. bongos. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if, if he really did say yeah. bongos, but maybe he did, you know. I mean, who? Well, he liked them. If he didn't, he liked them anyway. So. Yeah. yeah. Because I, I could never, I couldn't figure out for years before, I guess, the internet and stuff. I, I thought, what is that? I couldn't even figure out what that yeah. percussion was. I mean, was. That's, that's still a problem now. I, sometimes I'm reviewing albums and I'm like, this thing sounds really great and I have no idea what instrument it is because I don't have any musical background as a, a player, just as a listener. So, yeah, that's still problematic even now. Yeah, um, well, how are we to know? Yeah, it's that's the way it should be, though, isn't it? Don't you think? I mean, I think yeah. to, to review something, you should—you don't need to be an expert in the nuts and bolts of it. You just need to know what you think and be able to express yeah. it. Yeah, well, and we? what the sound, how the sound makes you feel. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I mean, did you when you were taking this Griel Marcus course, or indeed your English degree, did you know that you wanted to write about music back then? No, not at all. Oh. I did a, like a liberal arts degree, and I thought I would stay in academia because it was safe and easy mm. and got to the end of my undergrad and was like, I never want to do any of this again. Mm. <laughs> and taking that class was one of the things where I thought, oh, maybe I could do something else, like, you know, maybe write about music or at least do something in that's to do with music. Mm. I didn't realise that you could write about music in that way that Grill Marcus writes that's kind of maybe slightly academic but not kind of impenetrable. So, yeah, and then just graduated and kind of started doing all kinds of things in the music industry and building up to reviewing. Have you ever gotten in trouble with any of your reviews, with any of the people you've reviewed, just as a matter of interest? No, not really. You sometimes get a PR, you know, you ask political questions and then the PR will message you afterwards saying, cut all that, which is always a shame. But yeah, I've never... I've never got into sticky waters with anyone. I've been mm. quite lucky. I've interviewed quite nice people as well. So, mm. Of course, back in the day, they didn't have PRs, really, did yeah, they? Yeah, oh, God. Yeah, what a dream. Hung with, <laughs> with them for a while, but that's, yeah, that'll, that'll never happen again. Mm. I think the last thing on this list of six, oh, no, there's actually one more after that, that you listed, and I don't, don't know when that tweet was. No idea. But I can't remember. it was, um, I want you. Mm. So who wouldn't love that song? But I yeah, mean, what's it's, that's a beautiful song. Yeah. Um, I actually the first time I heard that was the Bruce Springsteen covered it in a like a, there's like a bootleg of a concert he did in 
like 74 or something. Yeah, I think it's it's, yeah, it's pre-born to run because he sings this version of Thunder Road and it's like Angelina's dress waves and you're like, who's Angelina? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realise it was a Bob song, I think, for a while. And Bruce's cover is great. But um, mm. yeah, that's... It's just such a beautiful song. I'm trying mm. to picture Bruce singing it. I mean, does he? He doesn't rock it out or anything, does he? Is, is it sort um, of acoustic or? No, I think it's fairly lively. Oh. Um, this was like his skinny jumping around days as well. The um, hat years, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah so he didn't really stand the, still at that point. No. Yeah. yeah, that. I mean, that's like one of the few times I don't find Bob particularly romantic or attractive. But mm. that's one of the few songs where I'm like, yeah, I could be persuaded by you. Just some of the the phrasing is just so lovely. It's, yeah, it's irresistible, really. Mm. Just the phrase, I want you, for, you know, a, not pop, but a, a song, a popular song mm. back then, was, you know, pretty breathtaking. Yeah, it's quite bold, really. It's pretty bold. You know, Sinatra or whatever would sing, fly me to the moon yeah. or whatever, but <laughs> I want you mm. <laughs> it's, so bad. Yeah. It's about yeah. as dirty as yeah. you know, it gets. Yeah. I've always been interested in the in the kind of the path that goes from I want you to then calling an album Desire. And then in, then even PJ Harvey, who's a big Dylan fan, releasing an album called Is This Desire. Mm. Yeah. You know, and the different levels that works on. And the the last song was uh, Don't Think Twice. Mm. I mean, come on, like that's oh, yeah. just I think if you've ever been through a breakup or any any kind of loss that's where you're feeling slightly bitter, that's like the best song to listen to. Do you remember where um, you first heard that, like in the same way that you remember Desire? No, not not, not as specifically. Um, it was definitely more in my 20s when I think I was old enough to understand that kind of emotion. And just, you know, you just wasted, my, you kind of wasted my precious time. It's just, it's a great line if you've been mucked around by somebody. I think maybe even Dylan isn't aware how much that sentiment speaks to people in their 20s. I, yeah. I was, uh, one of my children, when I was redecorating their bedroom, I found those lyrics written on the wall. And I thought, that's fantastic <laughs> wow. that those lyrics spoke to you. you know? Yeah, that's good parenting as well, I think. Well, I, I mean, you know, I wish I could take that credit, but there's, <laughs> there's no way either of my children would listen to music, you know, that I'd uh, advocated them the other, the other way around. You know, they'd run away from anything. Mm. But somehow they discovered that by themselves and, and put it on their wall and I thought, oh, that's, that's good. But I th- as I say, I think it's, it's testament and to what you said as well that that, that lyric really, really speaks to, to young people yeah, now. It's, yeah, it's, it's kind of timeless and just bang on the money, really. Yeah. Well, it sort of says a lot of things that you wish you'd said at yeah. the time. <laughs> yeah. But you could have done better, I find, the, yeah. the most awful, yeah. bitter, you know, that's mm. to me, that, that that's the real gloves off. Yeah, yeah. Like, on a, I've been rating you, and actually, I'll give you a two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also, I, you just kind of wasted my precious yeah. time. It's like, yeah. I can't even be bothered to get yeah. angry about this. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't care that yeah. much. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if we, because we don't, we don't get a lot of female Dylan fans no, on here. And we, we try, mm-hmm. but uh, a lot of the times people are, you know, just a bit, insecure or maybe they most of the time they just don't like bob but um i think i'm not sure if we've asked if i've asked anybody this before but i think a possibly problematic song is uh, just like a woman yeah it's interesting to ask you about that do you find it problematic or how do you i do i think definitely as i get older more <laughs> more woman than girl um mm-hmm. And, yeah, the more I see of the world and of how men behave and then, 
you know, when I was younger, I was listening to all these songs with very kind of wide eyes and, you know, wanting to believe in all the romance. And, yeah, as you get older and you just see that there's another side to the song that's not so pleasant. Mm. And um, I think, yeah, the older I get, the harder I find to listen to some of his stuff. And I don't know if I'll kind of come back the other way as I get even older. I'm trying to think of other songs that I find. Well, some um, yeah, critics have, have drawn a line between that and you're a big girl now. Mm. You know, the the, the the little girl, big girl thing. Yeah. And yeah, I think little girl is just quite a problematic phrase. And yeah. it, it comes up a lot in Springsteen songs as well. And mm-hmm. I was too kind of enamoured with him to notice it. And now I, when I hear it, I kind of wince. And yeah. I think it's, you know, it's something of its time. I don't think it means that... But maybe it's also because those guys go quite deep because the Beatles use that phrase mm. a lot well so did the Stones and I, th- I think mm. it depends you know the Beatles would not sing it with menace generally mm. but whereas you know Bob and yeah. even Bruce might you know because yeah. because they tend to go deep they tend to go deeper it also goes back to Chuck Berry doesn't it you're, you're either saying you know she's too cute to be a minute over 17 which mm. is you know yeah. a little bit problematic it's... or it's talking to a fully grown woman as if she's that young. And they're mm. both as arguably as bad yeah, as each other, aren't not, they? Yeah. But I'm not maybe as critical a, a listener as I should be. I think I don't always see... When I hit, listen to Bob, I don't listen to the songs from the woman's perspective. I'm always wanting to be Bob more mm. than... And kind of sympathising with him, even at his worst and his most bitter. I think we all have those moments. Mm. Um, and, I, yeah, I don't tend to put myself in the shoes of, of the women that he's kind of being mean to and I think probably I should probably listen from that perspective a bit more on the other hand Bob is mean to men yeah <laughs> I mean you know he's certainly in his before the uh, he went back to Woodstock and mm. settled down with Sarah you know he's mean to everybody yeah he, he got more and more mean you know he was he was just notorious he, well there's documentary evidence yeah. you can see him being mean to yeah. people but then again yeah if he wasn't then he wouldn't be Bob yeah Dylan. and I think that meanness is quite you know it speaks to to me as a woman in a strange way it's like this kind of bitter like resentment I feel sometimes of being a woman in a kind of you know man's world and just feeling that kind of yeah really bitter just wanting to be mean to everyone because you're feeling that way so, yeah, it does speak to me in that way. Yeah, I mean, I think probably us Bob fans kind of want to be Bob in a mm. way, you know, when we never will be, we can't be. And romantically, you'd sort of like to be able to be in touch with that much art. And But in the, the, the more I think about Bob, and I think about Bob a lot now, <laughs> the less I want to be Bob. Mm. Uh, because, especially the, well, uh, this may lead us to rough and rowdy mm-hmm. ways. Um, because, you know, he's been, God, his journey has just been so long and grueling. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I'm I'm glad that he's sort of ended up where he is on rough and rowdy ways. But I think there's there's some... There's a lyric, actually, I, I wrote down here because I was listening to it the other day. Um, I hope that the gods go easy mm, with me. Yeah. I find that sort of frightening, but also, you know, really, um, it's sort of sweet because yeah. you, it reminds you that Bob Dylan's a human being because I, I forget. Yeah. 
you know, that he, when he was being mean to people, he was still being a human being. Yeah. And I hope the gods go easy with me. I just find we all kind of yeah. think that. And it sort of makes Bob less of a god to me and more yeah, of a human. It, it, you kind of see a vulnerability there, I think. Mm. And you forget that he is, you know, not just a human, but a really old human. <laughs> like yeah. he's really staring down the barrel of, mm. of death now. And even though it kind of feels like he has been for a long time, you know, the last maybe since time out of mind, I guess, mm-hmm. which was like 30 years ago almost. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think there's a kind of sadness to that as well, that line. And I think all of Rough and Rowdy Ways is so... It's kind of one of the first times that we hear from someone who's that it's about ageing rather than, you know, mortality is something he's sung about for a long time and it's, mm-hmm. it's you know, it's always been around in, in pop music. It's You've got people like Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin dying these kind of tragic mythic deaths. Mm. There's always been like a sense of mortality, but it's the first time that there's been a sense of age in because, you know, yeah. the music is only this old, so it's... And also because those musicians carried on, we got lulled into this full sense of security that they were just going to carry on. Yeah. And as we're recording, it's been, what, a month or six weeks since the death of Charlie Watts, and suddenly the obvious conclusion that people over 80 are going to die is staring us in the face. You're thinking, shit, in the next 10 years... Oh, don't. We're going to be... Yeah. McCartney, Brown Wilson, Bob Dylan, you know, all the members of all those bands in the 60s that seem to go on forever are going to prove to be mortal in the most obvious and predictable way fashionable, and yet still it's somehow shocking. And in the same... You know, this week, as we're recording, Bob Dylan has just announced another three years of concerts. (laughs) Yeah. No. I was I was kind of surprised by the. Does he normally put like an end date on his tour? No. Yeah. So no. is that him saying? That, yeah, I'm going to die and then yeah, fight into a, <laughs> yeah, and also, it. I didn't call it this, but the poster makes it look like the Rough and Rowdy Ways tour, which mm. which is not the never ending tour. No. You know, maybe that's yeah. well. I think he said that ended in about 1990, didn't yeah. he? But I hope he brings that band from the Shadow Kingdom. Shadow Kingdom. Yeah. I because I, I thought they were great. I don't know if you if you saw that, but. No. It was a very, a very young band. It wasn't as usual old grizzled veterans mm-hmm. and quite acoustic. Uh, if indeed they were the ones playing, I mean, we, we don't, we don't well, know. They were the ones I, performing. Somebody told me that they knew the bass player, the, the mm. woman who was playing bass. I can't remember. Somebody I think we were in touch with about yeah, the podcast. And that they're an existing band and... He, he said, you know, I know the bass player. She is a bass player for this band. It was that band playing with Bob Dylan. Yeah. Um, you're looking sceptical. Well, I just, I believe <laughs> they're a band and I believe skeptical. they are miming to music that somebody has recorded, but what I don't know is who recorded that music. It could be them, it could be other musicians. You well, know. I'm, just, I'm just hoping, yeah. I'm, I'm putting my vote in for, yeah. for those guys because actually it's great. I mean, it's a great, great yeah, band. It yeah. sounds fabulous. So. Well, I am, I mean, as we alluded to before we started recording, I am... After 18 months of lockdown, the, the two people I thought I would never see in concert again and absolutely dying to see in concert again are Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, you'd sworn off with Dylan. And I, yeah, I, yeah, I'm, I was at I'm, least yeah. two yeah. concerts beyond never seeing him. <laughs> you know, well, I've never seen him. Oh, really? um, and it was the pandemic. I, th- I feel like the pandemic made us all think of all the things that we really did want to do with our lives mm, because we yeah. suddenly couldn't do anything. And for me, it was you've got to see Bob Dylan let's hope he doesn't get COVID and you can see him when this is all over. But yeah. I know I have you know, I have no expectations. I just want to be in the room with him. 
while well, he's still so here. Hopefully every um, chance if, if between now and yeah. 2024. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's an international <laughs> tour, the dates they've committed to, isn't it? Just hope it's not Wembley Arena or... Mm, the O2. It, yeah, it doesn't matter. But it doesn't, it doesn't matter, actually. I'm going to go see him at whatever shitty venue yeah, me too. he plays. Mm. It will be interesting to see him play after... Like, this must be the longest break he's ever taken from yeah. touring. Yeah. I wonder if that's had any impact on... Well, that was the thing about Shadow Kingdom. The sound of his voice, that was a... You know, it was a voice who'd had a year plus off. Mm. So it was better. Yeah, much better. I mean, mm. he, had, he had some range. Um, going back to um, you mentioned Charlie Watts, mm. and when he when he sadly died, somebody tweeted about how the Stones have always defined what it means to be young, yeah. you know, even up to their their seventies, and maybe slightly ridiculously. But I think what Bob's doing is kind of defining what it means to be old, particularly on rough and rowdy ways. I think there's a kind of sense of an old guy just wandering around, you know, reflecting on. You know, 80 years of any life is amazing, but 80 years of Bob's life is just like, I can't even begin to comprehend that. Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded in the Lazarus Suite back home at Lip Sync Studios. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Robin Guise. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at is it rolling pod? I want to be with you in paradise. And it seems so unfair. I can't go back to paradise no more. I killed a man back there. You think I'm over the hill? Think I'm past my prime? Let me see what you got. We can have a womp in good time.